I grew up in a household where all three of my older cousins and brothers, one doing 80 years in Stateville, 40 years, 20 years, same house, man. And I, I write my brothers, I write my cousins. I always write them by hand so they know I still love them. You know what I mean? And I asked him, how is it in Statesville? My older cousin told me, he said, Jamal, you know what? On my block, you know, because in jails it's blocks, A block, B block, C block. He said, on my block, I'm not in here with no, I'm not in jail with any pedophiles. And there's no rapists where I'm at. I'm in here with guys that have sold a little drugs, racketeering, armed robbery, you know, regular stuff. I mean, he really said regular, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> man, it got me thinking that. Got me thinking. It's not regular for German shepherds to be sniffing kids on 79th Street. It's not regular for helicopters to be landing on top of people's houses at night. It's not regular to have to order your breakfast through bulletproof glass windows every day. If y'all just ate y'all quiche through a bulletproof glass window right now, you'll be traumatized. It's not regular to walk inside of a Walgreens and all the costs are be locked up. It's not regular for all the billboards in my community to promote cheap divorces and $6,000 tax advances. Right? It's not regular, man. It's, it's not regular for there to be 15 currency exchanges and no banks. How am I supposed to save? It's not regular for there to be a liquor store in every other corner. I might as well get drunk. It's not regular for there to be a holding cell in the basement of a funeral home. It's not regular for there to be two paddy wagons parked outside in front of my high school. That's not regular. It's not regular for 80% of the kids in my program to know somebody that's been murdered. But only 10% of the kids in my program know somebody that's been to college. That stuff is not regular. And they say, like it's regular, they say that I work with at-risk youth. Man, the integrity of this city is at risk if we're not supporting programs like My Block, My Hood, My City. It's not regular. A speech by Jamal Cole, who's running for Congress in the United States. He's from Chicago, Illinois, and he's running for the first congressional district there, deep in his campaign. And his It's Not Regular speech from 2018 is one of my all-time favourites. It's such a thrill to get him on the podcast. It was in the Speakola speeches of the year in 2018. And when you hear the speech and when you hear Jamal interviewed, it is going to be something special. I know this is a great episode. I've just chatted to Jamal and I can't stop thinking about the conversation. So hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I have. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do support us. I think you probably know the drill now. I've got a Patreon page for those who want to make a monthly contribution. could be as little as a cup of coffee. And 47 people have done that. Very grateful to you all. Or you might just want to make a straight donation. That's simpler for some people. And, and some very generous people have made some very generous donations. Anything from 10 to 20 and some people have even given $100. You know, that's really helpful. Helps cover the costs of making this thing. And gives me a bit of confidence to push forward with it. So to become more than just a listener, to become a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate. And those addresses are in the show notes. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome. I am Tony Wilson, not the founder of Factory Records, not the NFL footballer, but the author from Melbourne, Australia, who has a love of speeches and talks about speeches a lot. Been talking about speeches this morning on 
ABC Breakfast with Sammy J, we were talking about war speeches. Volodymyr Zelensky's amazing speeches of recent weeks. And we drew comparisons with Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher and John Curtin. All these speeches that are up on Speakola, hopefully one day they'll have their own Speakola podcast episode. But for those of you who subscribe to the newsletter, and you can just sign up at speakola.com, scroll halfway down a page and there'll be a pop-up. Those of you who do subscribe to the newsletter would have seen that we featured Volodymyr Zelensky's speech that he delivered to the Russian people. And there was a great idea for a speech as well to leapfrog the obstacle of a censored media. Zelensky knew Russian TV wouldn't broadcast his speech, but to give it anyway. And the fact that it was aimed at the Russian people, I mean, that's important if they do end up seeing the speech, uh, but it's also... I think it enhanced the power for the non-Russians who were watching it around the world and built an international sympathy for Zelensky. All of these things I put into the newsletter as we discussed that speech. So if you want to join up to the newsletter, go to speakola.com and sign up. And another way you can help Speakola and me is go to the iTunes page, the Speakola page on iTunes, and just enthuse Enthuse with stars, scatter stars like you're a deity building a universe. Just give us as many stars as you can and then just enthuse wildly. That apparently helps and any rating or reviewing uh, would be much appreciated. And while we're on the subject of stars, there's four of them on the cover of the podcast Reader. Issue 5, the Statue of Liberty is wearing a Chinese flag and the Chinese stars are on her chest. The price of primacy. Can the United States stop China becoming the dominant regional power? That interview relates to when Hugh White was a guest on Democracy Sausage. And the idea of the podcast reader is to publish the transcripts of excellent long-form conversations that have taken place in some of your favorite podcasts democracy sausage the jolly swagman conversations with tyler the greatest music of all time mindscape podcast the good life they are the podcasts that are featured in issue number five highly recommend it find out more at podread.org there's a hard copy magazine and a pdf and you can get a free copy of the pdf if you email hello at podread.org and mention speak ola say hello to david in your message tell him that you want to find out more about his magazine and give me a good plug and say to keep on sponsoring me because it's very kind of him podread.org well it's been a journey getting this interview recorded. Jamal Cole, as I said, I loved his speech when I first heard it back in 2018, and he's always been a bit of a dream guest for me. I tracked him down on Twitter, and he runs a youth organisation, a social impact organisation called My Block, My Hood, My City, and it gives opportunities to kids on the south side of Chicago to have what a middle-class kid from Melbourne, Australia might regard as regular experiences. Go to art galleries, go to sporting games, hang out, go to cafes, visit the city, even do something as simple as ride in a taxi. And it was in his capacity as the founder and director of that program that he was asked to speak at the Martin Luther King Interfaith Breakfast where he delivered his It's Not Regular speech. Jamal is a speaker an activist, a father of two young daughters, and he is busy. He's running for Congress. His website is cole2022.com, and you'll hear it actually midway through this interview. He just We lose him. There's a, an emergency comes up in his very busy life, and it's bang, phone down. And it's a bit the same at the end of the interview as well. Some nice abrupt endings, but in between, wow, what? an incredible speaker. What a force of nature. And he is so fluent too. I mean, keep in mind, for most guests, I do a pass. I basically knock out all the ums and ahs. I figure that if you're listening to a speeches podcast, let's make it fluent and fast and as well-spoken as possible. So I spend quite a few hours each episode cutting out 
pad words, but with Jamal Cole, no pad words, no ums or ahs, no ums and ahs in his speeches, no ums and ahs when he was speaking to me. It, was, it, it is incredible. He is a talent. There was another good speaker who was a community organiser in Chicago, and I was going to ask him about him, but Jamal disappeared too quickly. Anyway, you will definitely enjoy this episode. Listen to the chat. Listen to the speech. It's a beauty. Well, we've got our first overseas guest for the year, and we're going all the way to Chicago. Thanks for joining us, Jamal Cole. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Um, I've never been down under, <laughs> but I, um, I'm so elated. I'm so honored. I can't even believe that y'all heard my speech. So that's dope, man. Thank you. So tell us, Jamal, you are running for Congress. What is the race there? Who's the incumbent? And what's what's the day of a congressional candidate look like? What have you been doing today? Well, I mean, it's politics. So when you have uh, um, power and greed, you know, a lot of principalities come at you. So if you want to get into politics and you uh, um, have integrity and you walk in that, just know that you'll have to dodge debacles and dodge tribulations like potholes in Jamaica, you know, there, they can be detours and not derailments, but at the same time, it's it's tough. So, a day a day in a life, I've been shot at three times. My home has crumbled in. Finances are are are, are scarce. It's not the place for the weary. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jamal, the incumbent is Bobby Rush. He's been there, I think, since the Clinton years, hasn't he? He's been there since 1992. He's one of the longest serving members of Congress. What are your thoughts on Bobby Rush? Is there a sense that that campaign is 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 the well-oiled, well-funded, difficult-to-combat campaign? Well, um, he has been there for 15 terms. And, you know, I, I um, he was – I seen him maybe seven months ago, and I, I said, hey, man, you know, I'm running for office in the 1st District. He's like, well, why are you running for my office? And I said, well, you told me to run for office when we had lunch. He's like, yeah, but not my office. And I was like, um, well, I didn't know what office I was going to run for. The people asked me to run for this office because you hadn't been to work in the last two years because of your health. So this is the office the people asked me to run for. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's how he treated me. But um, And then um, he decided a month ago not to run again. So when Bobby Rush drops out, 15 other candidates enter the race out of nowhere. Right. So you can imagine the... Um, What's at stake here? So Congressman Rush is a legend. Um, we stand on the shoulders of people like him. When he wore a hoodie, when Trayvon Martin passed, the bills that he introduces, what he stands for, like, he's a legend. And so when I saw him a month ago in the snow, I grabbed him by his arm and I walked him through the snow. I, I walked into his car. I opened up his car door. I helped him get in. I put his suit jacket in the car so it wouldn't get dirty. And he said, thank you, Jamal. And I was like, yes, Congressman Rush knows who I am. And I wanted to ask him why he didn't endorse me. Why didn't you endorse me? You know, but I didn't ask that. But that's that's kind of um, where we're at. Has he endorsed anyone, Jamal? Yeah, he endorsed Karen Norrington Reeves. You're wearing a stop gun violence and a, and a Cole 2022 T-shirt. Um Tell us about the the gunshots. Why why would you get shot at at the, at this time of the race? Is it to do with the race, or is it to do with living where you do and and the sorts of things you're trying to to fight in in Chicago's first congressional district? Well, um, it should say so called gun violence. I think that people, the way poverty and segregation contribute to so called gun violence is misunderstood. I think that. Uh, um, what I want to do is introduce a root causes of gun violence act that tells people about why it exists. So um, if a plane goes down, they say they look at the black box and say, why this plane go down? And they see that it went down because of the electric or the, the engine. But when, uh, um, when there's gun violence on the South side of Chicago, they don't say, why is it happening? They say, Oh, the people just shooting each other, bro. That's not the case. Gun violence is a reflection of 
five or six conditions that I've identified. So there's racial and economic injustice, high incarceration rate, high unemployment rate, poor neighborhoods, under-resourced schools, and then I will say health literacy that people don't know. So if you have those conditions, the question shouldn't be, why is there so much gun violence? The question should be, why isn't there more? Because those root causes lead to it. So yeah, so from a congressional standpoint, what can you do about it? That's that's the question I'm, I'm looking for answering. Well, that takes us back a little bit to the speech, this it's not regular speech that you delivered in 2018. Can you provide the context for that speech? What was the invitation? What was the brief? What was the day? I don't know, man. I, I would just say that uh, um, I speak from my heart. And... And... I'm taking a stand with integrity for what I believe in. And... Winning for me is when I walk down the street and somebody says, man, I didn't believe in myself before I saw you doing that. Like, that's winning for me. And also, um, when you live on the south side of Chicago, you can um, be desensitized to things sometimes. And so I'm pointing them out. That's what it's about, just pointing out injustice that's hidden. How come... There's 15 currency exchanges and no banks in my community. Um, how come the currency exchange charged me 3% on my dollar? Um, how come on average we spend $40,000 over the course of a lifetime at the currency exchange? Um, how come the biggest billboard in my neighborhood says cheap divorces or you know $6,000 tax advances? Um, how come when I walk into the store, they have three inch bulletproof glass windows. Like that's not regular. Um, how come there's so much trash? Those, I mean, that's, that's what it was about pretty much. It's an incredible speech. You make the decision at the start to, to, I guess, fill a persona. You don't, you speak in the first person, but you're not speaking as you and the audience doesn't know that there's a conceit, you know, you're speaking as though it's you who's lived this day, but you present a day of maybe a, a gang member or one of the people that you've been helping at my block, my hood, my city. You, you, you fill their shoes in the opening part of the speech. Can you talk about that decision to be someone who you're helping? Sure. Um, I'm going to say, so So basically, I run an after-school program where I hear a, a lot of stories from youth, and those youth help me. And so those youth are, are um, their stories, and my stories combined, we... You know, I tell myself every day at noon I'm the best storyteller in the world, and those stories need to be told over policies. And so that's why that's why I always open up in a story. And it's it's almost like a novelist story. You know, getting a sense of the heating being off, getting a sense of how long relatives have been out of the house, getting a sense of the drug deals and the language that's used. It's not being in a gang; it's being in a set. And you know, there's is a real kind of storytelling, almost a novelist flair to that opening of the speech. It's why I love the speech so much. Can you talk about, had you given this sort of speech before? Had you, had you used this device before? When you start a program on the south side of Chicago, you have to be able to swim. Like, the kids don't know. Like, you can't approach them like you're about to have a program. You have to approach them from a, how can I help? Like, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Like, you have to build a relationship. And from that relationship, you realize how you can help. So I wasn't trying to build, I wasn't trying to be innovative. I wasn't trying to, I was just trying to help however I can. If that's paying a light bill or a phone bill or taking you on a field trip, I'll do it. So my approach wasn't to be sustainable or innovative. It was really just like, man, what do you need? And from asking those questions in the lunchroom, I figured out what I could do to help with the resources that I had. If you take us back to your background, it gets a little bit of an airing in the speech. I get a sense that the it's not regular line actually came from your brother um, or was it your cousin who was who was doing time inside and he just talked about regular crimes, you know, and that and that expression hit with you and became the, the guiding phrase of the speech. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and the, and, and what you saw around you and, and to what extent is that that persona you adopt at the start of the speech, to what extent is that your life? Um, I grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, 
And the tallest building where I'm from is the jail. And we used to drive by it at nighttime and see people playing basketball at the top with lights on. And um, that was the tallest building. And all of my cousins were there. Um, so, you know, I grew up eating out of homeless shelters, breaking down food stamps, government assistance, going to alternative or low-performing high schools. That's how I grew up. So when I graduated, I knew where I wanted to work out of because of my lived experiences. You did finish high school, and I think you did um, tertiary as well, didn't you? Because you ended up, or went to college, you ended up as uh, IT or something like that? No, I went to Wayne State College in Nebraska. I have a Microsoft administration certification. And 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 your first job out of out of college was Target. You know, Target store. Um, I worked there third shift doing unlo- unloading semi trucks and putting the goods into the store. That's what I did the first job out of college. And what moved you towards the community organizing stuff? How did you make the shift from being you know, a shift worker to someone who was helping kids and starting your own organization, the My Block, My Hood, My City. It was just traveling, man. It was just volunteering and seeing that a lot of kids had never left their city or left their block or their neighborhood, and their whole worldview was shaped by whatever was there. So I knew if I wanted the, them to be better, I had to show them better. And so I started introducing them to new jobs, new foods, um, new cultures, basically. That that was the start. And and to what extent was that a I this was my life that I lived. I don't want them to live it. Uh, or to what extent do you feel like you didn't hit the lows that these kids you see hit? <laughs> um, yeah, man. I, I, I it wasn't about like. Um, hold on one second, bro. Um, one second. And that was it. I lost Jamal there. Got a text from him saying an emergency had come up and we had to reschedule, and eventually we did. Hey, Tony, how you doing, man? I'm going well. How are you going? <laughs> um, pretty busy, man, as usual. Um, so got an emergency board meeting in about 30 minutes, so I've been just just scrambling today, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get this done, man. So I can get a, um, so I can get you what you need. I appreciate you being patient. Let me, let's get this done. No worries. Can, can you tell us about the emergency last week? Is it anything that sort of gives a little taste of what your life is like? There, there, the emergency is that you know I, I run a, a nonprofit organization uh, of about twenty people, and I'm running for U.S. Congress in the first district, and you know you're. You don't have to, and then you know I'm also getting married, so there's like a lot of uh, um, there's a lot of things going on in my life right now, and I am um, and also I have two kids and two daughters, right? And so there's just a lot going on that, um, and because my nonprofit organization is so big, um, we've we've uh, grown rapidly, and when you grow rapidly, there can be cracks in your foundation that you really need to pay attention to, or the problems will start happening. So I need to spend more one-on-one time with things to make sure that. Um, you know, make sure I'm present and make sure that I, I, I pay attention to my business. So that's that's kind of a, um, that's kind of what's going on. Getting back to it, can you tell us with the story at the start of that speech in 2018, the at the interfaith breakfast, the I guess the storytelling element, the the stepping into the shoes of one of your foundation's kids. How much was that an amalgam of stories? How much was that you know one kid's story? It was. It was a lot of my story and a lot of kids' stories together. Um, you know, I started off saying that, telling a story about just growing up, you know, and, you know, the having half the ear bit off and, you know, all, all my life my parents used drugs. I mean, those are stories of people I grew up with. You know I mean? Those are stories I, I talk about with my family members that are in jail right now. So I was just using personal stories then. And then um, as far as, uh, as far as, you know, my dad, uh, um, he never likes my post on Facebook. That, that's a direct result of me dropping kids off at night and talking to them about their life. And they, you know, my dad, he always likes my mom's post on Facebook. But when I post a story about me having a 3.5 GPA, he doesn't like that. And that kind of bothered me. You know, those kind of things stand out to me. So that's kind of why I use that. Um, you know, I, I would say it's about 70% of my stories, maybe 30% of other people's. And when you're standing there in the audience, does the whole audience know that this is a fiction? You don't own up to it straight off. Do you think there are people as you start talking, who think you are talking about your life? 
Um, well, I, I tell myself every day at noon, I'm the best storyteller in the world. And so a lot of my stories are of my real life and my experiences. Um, as you see, when you're running for Congress, I've been shot at three times this year. My home has fallen down. Um, I've got kicked out of the Super Bowl. I mean, I have a lot of my own stories to tell that I can just write for days about, you know. So I, I don't I don't I'm not thinking about what they think of is real or not or mine or not. I'm thinking about what I want them to feel. I'm not planning my temperament, but I'm almost wanting them to feel what I'm saying. And, and that's why I don't really say hello when I get on stage. I don't thank anybody. I just go right into the story. That's kind of my style. Yeah, well, I, I didn't mean that the stories weren't real and that they weren't drawn on your life. I meant the conceit that, that that you right now are living that life. You know, when I first heard it, I didn't see the video, and I thought, you know, this is a kid talking and and not an organizer. Yeah, it was it was really powerful when you switched it around and said, you know, I'm Jamal Cole, Cole. I'm the kid. I'm the person who takes these kids around. Yeah, that. So that story right there, man. It was uh, um, like I said, it was a story built upon one of my uh, cousins that's in jail for a long time, you know, talk, talking to him on the phone. And then I kind of pulled that story into what the kids tell me when I'm in their car. I just, you know, when I'm talking about, and then when I talk about the nine cars on the block, that was just me from playing basketball outside in the hood with some kids. And I saw them fighting over a GPA. And one kid told me he was a lookout on the block. And so I just memorized nine different cars and just felt those be good for that story. But he did tell me he, he knew all the cars in his block, but I just added that, you know, I just added that information in there to make it more of a um, meaty for the story. So I just, I just kind of like take things and I, I put, you know, it's, it's almost like making a rap song or something like that. I just put cadences in it. I put storytelling in it. I just mix it all together. And what about the the ability to do that? You know, you talk about the smart kid is the, the he's the, I guess the hero of your story, but the smart kid. You were obviously the smart kid in the sense of where you are now and how you can speak and how you can structure things. When was there a sense that you were the smart kid? When was there a sense you could go places? Well, I, I don't necessarily look at myself like that. So I don't, um, I'm passionate about some things. So I would just say that I realized that I didn't have a counselor growing up. And so my outlet was writing or rap or, or poetry. And so it, it allowed me, or giving speeches, it allowed me to feel like I was special or making a contribution. And I realized that one of the things that I could do is plagiarize life. Like my style is telling life exactly how it is. I call it plagiarizing life, but it really is like, if I write about a train, I want you to tell you about how the how the chains on the train banged or how, what smell I smelled on the train or how the guy that sold weed, he was selling it out of his Bible or, or what, People, the kids were hustling, you know, basketballs, but they were really using the monies for, for whatever they wanted. You know, I, I kind of try to like brands and things like that are actually heard. And I just try to tell it as as close to real life as possible without no break in it. That's kind of my style. I call it plagiarizing life. So I don't really look at it like, oh, I'm one of the smart kids. I just know ever since I was little, telling stories has always been my counseling and there's been a lot of pain. And so to relieve that pain, or get that pain off. I just I use that to create, and that's that's my style. And I think I said last week. I think I called it a novelist's eye, the way I think of it. But you know, when you go, hey man, I want the Doritos. No, I don't want the spicy nacho. I want the Cool Ranch, the blue bag, the blue bag, the blue bag. And I don't even really know yeah. what you're talking about there, but it just sounds great. You know, it sounds <laughs> yeah. sounds like the lyrics of a song. Yeah, that 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 actually happened at like six in the morning. I saw it. I saw it, and um. I saw it standing outside of a bulletproof glass window when I was headed to the gym. And um, the lady was ordering some Doritos and she said, blue bag, you know, the blue bag. And actually, I don't think she was actually ordering that. I just I added the Doritos because I like Doritos. So I added those two different kinds in there. But she was literally, there was a long line outside the bulletproof glass and she was yelling her order. And I thought I took a picture of her doing it. And I started talking about how it was not regular for people to order their food through bulletproof glass windows. And so I was trying to draw you into an analogy. I went to I went to a KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I saw people doing it there too. But um, I just wanted to give a story about um, why kids are always yelling because they have to yell through bulletproof glass to get what they want. And I don't think that's regular. And so that's that's kind of like um, I don't I don't know. And maybe just talking with kids every day and hearing how they. Maybe just seeing what they do, I just maybe that's kind of like how I I try to plagiarize life. Like I said, if I said it, it happened just like, like it happened. That's why I like to go to currency exchanges and Western Union lines, and I like to go to I like to go places where people are 
because that's where I get the best stories or the best examples of real life. So, and you talked about rap and you talked about speeches as well. Was there uh, who were your heroes in terms of being able to speak and being able to string words together? Who were the rappers or who were the speakers that got you wanting to be a bit like that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I watched the movie Malcolm X so many times growing up. I thought Denzel Washington was Malcolm X. So all all of my life, I wanted to be like Malcolm X. You know, I heard Robert Kennedy. You know, I named my daughter Kennedy after Robert Kennedy. He, he was a great public speaker. He um, he says each time a man stands up for an ideal or strikes out against injustice, he creates a tiny ripple of hope, and together those ripples can meet each other and create a wave of change. I mean, like I always want like in Malcolm X. I mean, seeing him speak in front of the beauty supply stores or in front of the currency exchanges and him getting the oohs and ahs and ah. I always knew I wanted to get people to ooh and ah for me like that. And it took my whole life. And as far as rap, Nas, you know, listening to Nas albums and him telling his stories of poverty in Queensbridge, that really helped me out because it allowed me to feel, oh, I can use my stories of poverty to be to make a contribution. That took a lot of pressure off me. And then hearing Talib Kweli, when I was 17, have political raps, I was like, oh, wow, you can use these both, you know, in politics and rap and still make a message. And so even still, when I went to college, I was making hip hop songs and using the money to pay for Hurricane Katrina victim relief funds, you know? And so it, it didn't, I was going to be a rapper. I moved to New York City to be a rapper, but it didn't work for me after a couple months. You know, my friends left me in the airport by myself and I moved back to Chicago and I started, I wrote a book about how depressed I was. And that book got me into Cook County Jail volunteering. And at the jail when I volunteered, that's where I realized the guys in jail you know, I started a program called Rap Dreams, like R-A-P, Rising Articulate Professionals. And we would, they would tell their stories of trauma through their music. And I'd bring some equipment in there. They would tell their stories. And, and I did that. And that's where I kind of like, I realized God didn't want me to be a rapper. And that's when it dawned on me. It dawned on me that all the time I, I listened to these speakers growing up. And my mother taught me how to give speeches three times a week in the kitchen. She would, that's why I never use notes. I never look down at any notes in any of my speeches. You can look at all of them. I never have any notes because my mom, at five years old, taught me how to memorize my speeches. My first speech was, we the class of 1988 are determined to be our best at whatever we say or do. We'll share a smile and lend a hand to our neighbor because no matter what, we'll be the best in a lifetime. And that, those are 50 words. And that was the entirety of my preschool graduation speech. And my mom taught me how to give hand gestures and how to never look at my notes. And so I, it, it, just, it didn't dawn on me until after I graduated college that I was, I was raised to be you know, to, to, to be a communicator, to be a speaker. But it, it, I always thought that was a being rapper because, you know, it was cooler than, um, and it didn't take as much like a, um, research, you know, like I, the, your life is a research and rap, but when it comes to giving speeches, you have to put like, um, you know, you, it, it takes like a month of actual, not to say it doesn't take that long in rap. Cause it could take that long for two, two verses in rap. But when it comes to speeches, you know, you, I'm, what, what happened in my community this month? Let me read on this topic. From that topic, let me see what stories I can develop. You know, it, it's just different. Um, and then and then nobody wants to come to a speech. You know, everybody wants to go sing and dance and have fun and go to a concert, but nobody wants to come to see a speech. So you have to, uh, um, it takes a lifetime, man. It takes so long. I, I never got anybody to clap for me. I, I wasn't even comfortable on stage. I was trying to plan my temperament for so long. I was like, why aren't they yelling for me? You know, it, it it wasn't until I realized how to let go that I realized that um, I can get the oohs and ahs, but you got to let go. You got to let go of like, you know, of you can't plan your temperament. You, you don't know, you know, you just have to swim. And so, and then you have to be prepared, very prepared for kids crying. You got to be prepared for ambulances outside. You got to be prepared for nobody showing up. You got to be prepared to forget some things you gotta know your information so it's just so much that goes into public speaking that that i um that i, I just feel like is different than hip-hop but it all started from yeah memorizing hip-hop albums like nas memorizing hip-hop albums like talib Kweli, and i memorized so many albums that i knew i could you know memorize a 10-page speech oh i'll tell you i've been doing the, the podcast now for 31 episodes and no one's articulated what it is to be a speaker better you know that idea of swimming is just beautiful and and you can really feel your swimming and the confidence you have there do you remember the very early ones you said you'd grew into it and they weren't as strong but when mm -hmm. do you remember when you sort of became a speaker where, where where were you standing up was it at the prison when you had that job i mean when did you start to be someone yeah. who would do that that sort of thing i was speaking for 
a good 10 years before the It's Not Regular speech. The It's Not Regular speech is where I, I, it was my best speech because it was the first time I came out. It was the first time that I got the oohs and ahs. Like, and the reason why I got them is that month, the guy that was speaking before me was a big pastor in Chicago, Pastor Otis Moss. And I was so upset that they had me speaking after him because I was like, man, this guy's a great speaker. I don't want to speak after him to this crowd of a thousand people. So I practiced all month. I was nervous all month, you know. And I was like, I don't want to speak after him. But when I got on stage, you know, as soon as I got on stage, I um, I told I told myself to breathe. I said, Jamal, breathe. Take a couple deep breaths and just look at the audience and breathe. Don't say anything. Just breathe. Get on the same level. And then when I opened my mouth and started speaking, and I was like, you know, it's not regular for this. Guess who said something? Pastor Otis Moss, the first person in my life to scream. He's like, yeah, take your time. He was the first person to scream for me. Even though all month I thought he was my competition. But he was the first person that said, okay. And, I, and when he did that, it gave me the confidence. I was like, man, I've been waiting for that my whole life. My whole life I've been waiting to, to, to inspire the audience like that. And, you know, that's when it, I never looked back after that. I said, like, oh, I got it. I got it. I know. And I'm still, I'm still learning to how to control my superpower. Like, if you have a passion and emotion, you can't just go on the whole, you know, you can't just go the whole speech and passion, right? I judge my best speeches by if I cry or not. If I can cry, if I can cry, that means I wasn't afraid. If I can cry on stage about my stories, especially the ones that are personal, I know that I wasn't afraid of the crowd and I know that I transferred my emotion. But if I don't cry, then that means I was hesitant a little bit or there was something about it that, that didn't have me as comfortable. So that's how I um, want to approach a speech. Every speech, I want to come into it not afraid and I can actually cry because I'm being my full self. And that, that's when I can uh, um, you know, pick my spots where the emotion takes me. But I mean, you always have to come in on a monotone. You have to come in like your regular voice. If you come in too high right away, the whole speech is off. Right? If you come in too low, you know, you, just, you know, and sometimes you might have to come in high. I don't know. It's just you just have to come in as yourself. So I'm, I'm still learning how to swim it. You know, you're not going to swim in a, in a river the same as you're going to swim in an ocean or, or you know, a, a, a backyard pool. It's just it's just everything is different. But you all these experiences hit you at once, man. Right. When you open your mouth, you just breathe. And as long as you're on the same level. As the crowd, when you look at them, you, that's that's the thing. That's why I look at them because I want them to know I'm not afraid. You have to look at them. You got to look first. And it has to be almost an awkward exchange. Like the first part of it has to be you looking at them, for me at least. And then and then when they look back at you, they wonder if you're afraid. And then they look at you like, oh wow, it's kind of awkward. And then you go in. Now you have their attention. It's just a little little tricks that I that I that I do. I haven't heard that one before. It's a good one. Uh, do do you reckon yeah. you cr- do you reckon you cried in it's not regular? Do you think there's a bit where you catch yourself or where your voice catches? No, I, I didn't cry in that speech, but I I had put so much memorization into it that I was just really happy that I memorized the cars. Um, I was happy that I um I could have cried hearing the oohs and ahs. That was better than a cry to me. Like hearing people react, you know, hearing people drop their fork when I talked about quiche, you know, um, it was just a um. It, it was great, man. Then, then to see that it had hundreds of thousands of views, you know, it, it, if I'd have called it It's Not Normal, it'd probably have been, uh, you know, it probably had 500 million views if I'd have called it It's Not Normal. But I called it It's Not Regular because that's how my f- cousins talk in jail. When I call them and say, how are you doing in jail? They say, oh, well, I'm just in here with, um, I'm okay. I'm just in here with the guys that have sold a little drugs, racketeering. I'm not in here with any guys that have raped anybody or killed anybody. I'm just in here with guys that have sold drugs, you know, you're regular stuff, you know, and I always say, man, that's not regular. Like, and so that's why I called it. It's not regular. And um, I could have called it. It's not normal because that's what I meant. But, you know, I just I said I called it. It's not regular. That's why I did it. I think it sounds better. It's not regular. I think because, as you say, there's a jarring element to it in the phrase, in the phraseology. And I think I think it actually is, is more of a standout phrase. And, and it's not thank normal is more of a normal phrase and, and, and would, have, would have been less striking. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you. I just say that because Obama gave a speech maybe like two years later that said it's not normal. And I got 100 emails from people saying, oh, man, he stole your speech. Yeah, you know, he stole your speech. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? And I was like, oh, man, it's crazy. Like, but I, I know that, you know, he's got speechwriters and stuff like that. So I did take, I did take note. But I, I just know that I was saying the same thing a couple of years early. And I, I noticed that my phrase, it's not regular, hit a lot of nerves with people. Because when I posted my picket signs up, like I, to market my book, I put a lot of signs, like political signs, just like yard signs. I put them in front of the currency exchanges or in front of the liquor stores or in front of 
trash on the ground and, and pe or in front of the cheap divorce signs. And, and people used to take my signs down, but leave the cheap divorce signs up or leave the $6,000 tax advance sign up or leave the currency exchange sign. But they would take my sign. And so whatever I was doing was hitting a visceral nerve. Like there's, there's funeral homes that market Louis Vuitton caskets and Gucci caskets in the front window that light up at night. And if I put my it's not regular sign in front of that funeral home, they will take my sign down. That's but they won't pick the trash up on the ground. Right. They won't say that, hey, you know, they, but they'll take my sign down. So I, I just realized, damn, my sign bothers you more than a piece of trash. So you won't pick the trash up. Right. But you will take my sign down and throw it out. So that just um, that just lets me know that, um, yeah, it, it, it did. It did hit a nerve. And, and you had momentum too i mean you, th you think about that you said you, you you quite consciously go in uh without being too animated to be yourself and to be measured so that you give your pl yourself places to go and certainly when you switch into it's not regular that's when you're hitting an accelerator right so and that that was presumably well rehearsed you knew what you were doing there yeah yeah for sure i knew i could i had like 10 different things i could have said it was like you know just even knowing the cadence you want to say, it's not regular to walk into, you know, in all the food, all the cost syrup is locked up. It's not regular to go. Yeah, I, I even said them like which cadences will work in different places. You know, I, I had to, you know, this, this might sound better after this or this might sound better after this. Like I have a speech coming up next week on Friday and I want it to be just as good as the it's not regular speech. Right. It's going to be called um, front runners. It's got a speech about front runners. And I realized that in the campaign that I'm in right now, they call everybody that I'm running against front runner, right? They say, hey, you know, this person's a front runner. That's a front runner. That person's a front runner. So I'm basically what I'm saying is that I'm comparing there being three months in this marathon of a, a campaign. I'm comparing that to there being three miles to go in an actual marathon. So, you know, when it, I just celebrated an anniversary of one year of campaigning for U.S. Congress in the first district of Illinois. And whether people know it or not, I celebrated one year, and that's not easy. That's hard. And when I first started out, my friend said, Jamal, pace yourself. The race you're in is not a sprint. A campaign is like a marathon, right? The race you're in right now is not a sprint. The campaign is like a marathon. And so we all know that marathons, like the Chicago Marathon, the Boston Marathon, the distance is 26.2 miles. That's the distance. That's, that's a long time running. But I want to compare there being three months in this marathon of a campaign to there being to there being three miles to go in an actual marathon. So comparing three months to go in this marathon of a campaign to there being three miles to go in an actual marathon, right? So I've been campaigning for 13 months. I've run 23 miles. I've passed Chinatown. I've passed Greektown. I've passed McCormick Place. I'm jogging back. I have three miles to go, right? I've finished 23 miles. I have three miles to go. And out of nowhere, 10 candidates enter the race with hundreds of thousands of dollars out of nowhere. And you know what the media calls them? The news media calls them front runners. And I want you to know, this is, you have to pay attention right here. Really pay attention because this is why things don't change in Chicago. This is why. I just told you, I ran 23 miles. I have three miles to go. Three miles to go. I've been campaigning all year. And on, on mile 23, with three miles to go, 10 candidates enter the race with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the news media calls them front runners. Now, now that word front runner always stuck with me since my college basketball coach, Rico Burkett. You know, he gave me a, you know, at halftime one time, he came in and cussed everybody on the team out. He gave an impassioned speech. He said, you're a front runner. You're a front runner. You're a front runner. And I was a bench warmer, but he called me a front runner. I felt special. But what he was saying was that you guys are all front runners. When things are going good, when, the, when, when, you're, when you when you have a lead, you play good. But when you face a little bit of adversity... When, when you miss a jump shot, that's when things start to tumble down and you start to lose collectively, collectively as a team, right? When you're in the front, when you're in the newspaper, when you hit a jump shot, you're a good teammate. But when you miss that jump shot, you're not as good as a teammate. You guys are front runners. And the reason why that analogy is so similar to my campaign is because when things were uncomfortable, when there was adversity, when Congressman Rush was in the race, nobody stood up to him but me. Nobody entered the race with me. I was the first person to enter. But now that things are comfortable and convenient and Congressman Rush is running again, now suddenly 10 candidates enter the race with hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's a bunch of front runners, man. There are a bunch of front runners. And so that's kind of like my next speech that I'm going to go into. But I can't plan my temperament, but that's kind of like my storytelling of how I, I 
communicate if that makes sense so. oh, i can hear the i can hear the thought that's gone into it and and, and also the fluency the, the your ability to go without an um or an ah and also the pace i mean if anyone's trying to learn how to speak to hear your pauses when you're hitting the climax of your speech in it's not regular you know you're giving it yeah. big long bits for people to think in and and yeah. there is such a temptation when you're at at the sort of volume and intensity that you're speaking at there's a real temptation to gallop and and, and you somehow manage not to <laughs> yeah, i like that I, i'm trying last week i gave one of the worst speeches of my life although someone called me and told me it was the best speech they heard but i thought it was one of the worst speeches because it was all passion and i just kept on saying who shot me and i didn't i kind of didn't prepare i just went into like off the top of my head who shot me because i wanted to know i felt like you know i don't know why they came out on stage at malcolm x university i just kept on asking people who shot me because um yeah. Um, well, tell us about who did who, who did shoot you. I mean, you've told us a couple of times that you were being shot at three times. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean that's the question. I mean, somebody shot me, and I was in a room with a thousand people, so I asked somebody knows something. But I wanted them to know that, um, you know, when I got shot, I woke up in the ambulance, and they told me not to jog that way anymore. And I was like, hey, if I lived in a white part of town, would you have told me to j- not jog down that street? No. And then when I got to the hospital, they stripped me naked in front of fifteen doctors. And they stabbed me in the arm with a tetanus shot while they were working on my elbow. They couldn't take the bullet out. But while they were working with me on my arm, they sent two sheriffs to look at me. And the sheriff said they were going to arrest me because I had a warrant off of my arrest. And they told me that, my na- is your name Jamal Cole? Were you born in 1989? I was like, no, I was born in 1983. Oh, our bad. Somebody with your name has a warrant off of their arrest. We thought it was you. <sighs> but this, I'm already traumatized from being shot. But now you're further traumatizing me. And so I thought, I just, who shot me? In the middle of who shot, I just kept on, I just told that story of who shot me. And I wanted, I wanted people to know that this is, um, the kids had to go back to school like nothing happened after, they, after I was shot. Like, yeah. I got shot in broad. So I don't, I didn't really have a, pl- you know, I didn't really have like a, I didn't, I didn't have that speech as good as a, it's not regular speech. But, but also even more to your speeches, even more to the speaking, you got to have a camera crew that comes too with two cameras, one facing you and one facing the audience that floats, right? You got to have a microphone, a lavalier microphone on you. It makes no sense to put all this time and effort into a speech and then have it recorded on a phone or, or not have it recorded, right? You got to record it because that is your, um, that's, that's everything. And then, you know, you don't really book a lot of speeches by emailing people. It's like what you attract. So the production has to be good in it. You know what I mean? So it's like, to me, one speech, t- and then I get sick after my speeches because I put so much time and effort into them that my body literally gets sick. After I give a speech, I literally, because you got to understand, I've been with this this baby all month. Every day, I go over it 10 times in my mind. I go over all of it. I memorize it. I go over it in my head. I say it in the shower. I say it 10 times a day. You know, I, I, and even the up until, I mean, I, I'm saying it all day. And then once you give the speech and you release it, your whole brain space goes away because you've been you've had that in your brain all month. You know, it, it, I, I literally get sick afterwards. I, I realize that about myself. What about the the end of the speech? You've done the it's not regulars, and then I think you find a line that you know just really hit me in the guts. It was um, freedom without equity is not freedom. That's just a struggle. I just I didn't know what equity meant. People keep on talking about equity and equity and equity, and I think equity, real equity, is making sure people that don't have have something. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you, a lot of people don't have it's not regular. And so, you know, freedom without having, you know, is 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 not freedom. And so I, I was just putting a spin on words, man, like we there's no freedom on 79th Street right now. They're just the happiest lookers. There's no freedom on Pulaski and, and, and Roosevelt. There's just a, a bulletproof glass window of a Metro PCS. That's not freedom. Freedom without equity, like without equitable policies, without money in the community, without, you know, without money i mean you know it's not freedom and so i just, I just put it for the educational reform people to listen to i know people love that line they come on quoting it but it was really it was really simple for me but tony i only can talk for one more minute because i gotta i gotta jump off this call actually i gotta go but we can continue yeah. with later well, no, let's just finish, we'll finish it off with um you, you you don't mention racism explicitly but you do mention the structural part of the country's history that creates the oppression. You know, is that did you want to stay away from the the word racism and and and, and statements about color? 
No, I'm, I'm just trying to teach people that oppression is real. It's a structural part of our country and its history. It was created intentionally. And nowadays it's been cloaked up in trumped up laws and false media. And we don't know how it's being sustained. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about everybody that doesn't say that. Oh, why is, why is, why? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how oppression affects me. It's because, you know, you, you might not know that that bulletproof glass window or that currency exchange. Like when you get mad, you get mad at your landlord. You don't get mad at the people that make the fair housing, uh, you know, policies. You, you, know, you know, you don't get mad. You know, you get mad at the people that you can see, not at the policies. And so that's kind of what I was. I'm talking about oppression as is this as just the ozone above us. But we don't know how to talk about it because we're just mad at the gas prices. You know, we're not we're just mad at the guys that are shooting people. We're not mad at the root causes of gun violence. So. That's what I'm when I talk about oppression is real. I'm saying it's real, y'all. It's not just the history book saying, oh, people are oppressed. No, it's real. It's a structural part of the country. I'm, I'm teaching as I'm talking about it. And just to finish with, it's a Martin Luther King interfaith breakfast, and you finish with such a beautiful quote from Martin Luther King. Is that is that one you've lived with that you know those lines from the from the interconnected world speech? I think it's nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, man. It's just just that was beautiful, man. Um I, I I don't know the line off the top of my head right now, but I know that uh, um, I know I put it on a bridge in Chicago one time and they took it down. And so, but I but I do think that uh, um, as you listen to Dr. King teach you about the interrelating the clothing cloths he's talking about, and he speaks just like I do. I mean, he, he I speak just like he does. I was trying to hem those lines together, pretty much how he was talking about there being an interconnected world. But I literally got to go, Tony. I got to jump on another call. Well, thank Peace. you so much, Jamal. I really appreciate your time. Jamal Cole, busy man. I've got a new author website. It's TonyWilsonAuthor.com. I do have another website, TonyWilson.com.au, but that needs a renovation. This one can actually sell books, and I have about 15 of them for sale at TonyWilsonAuthor.com. That link's in the show notes as well. Given this episode is about political movements and political change, why not consider Harry Highpants, a White Raven selection at the Bologna Book Fair in 2008. And that is a picture book. It's about a mayor who tries to impose pants conformity on a community. And it's the kids and old Harry Highpants who band together to form... A wave for pants freedom. It's very like coal22.com. And certainly if you want to talk to kids about social change and political protest, Harry High Pants has been a winner for over 10 years now. So go to TonyWilsonAuthor.com. Buy yourself a Harry High Pants. I think they're $15. And there are a whole lot of other picture books there too. The Cow Tripped Over the Moon. That's a goodie. Or maybe you like sports books. You might like A Boy Called Bob. Or you might like 1989, The Great Grand Final. TonyWilsonAuthor.com Speech of the Week. Jamal Cole's It's Not Regular. You can find it on YouTube, but go to SpeakOla.com and look for it or search SpeakOla and Jamal Cole because this is a favourite. Jamal talked a little bit about the event at which he delivered this one. I didn't realise the audience was a thousand strong. And it was delivered on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which I think is the third Monday in January each year. So let's hear it. We can pretend that Jamal's eyeballing us. He talked about that technique in the interview, and he's about to start. So last night, I couldn't sleep. And you know, it wasn't because we don't have heat. We just heat the house of the oven. Not having heat on my block, that's regular stuff. I still couldn't sleep last night. And it wasn't because I heard gunshots. I hear gunshots all the time. I tell myself they firecrackers. I go back to sleep. Hearing gunshots on my block, that's regular stuff. I still couldn't sleep last night. It wasn't even because I saw helicopters. I mean, helicopters fly above my house all the time. They fly in threes. When they go up and down, they float like dragonflies. Rattle the house. 
Still wasn't why I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because the lights from the helicopters were shining through my window at 3 a.m. They had the whole block lit up. You can see every bullet casing on the ground at 3 a.m. I couldn't sleep because of it. I live in a house with my aunt and her husband. Both of them drug addicts. Nobody says that where I'm from, though. That's regular stuff. Last time I seen my aunt, she came into the house. She had a black t-shirt on with a Batman logo on her chest. Actually, half of her ear was missing. She got into a fight with a drug addict outside, and she laid in the kitchen floor bleeding. It's the last time I seen her, a couple weeks back. My house is ran by my older cousins. Both of them in gangs, they sell drugs, but that's regular stuff. We don't say we're in gangs where I'm from. We say this is my set. These are my friends. I'm a product of my environment. I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm in the trenches. It's regular stuff. I don't care what none of y'all say though. I love my cousins. Love my older cousins. And I love them because they tell me I'm smart. They say I'm gonna be the next Nino Brown. And my teachers don't say I'm smart. My cousins, they say I'm smart because I'm the lookout. I know every car that's supposed to be on my block. Nine of them. I know it's a Chevy with a black tent, baby blue Cadillac, van with the curtains in it, the man with the motorcycle, the royal blue Acura. There's a Toyota Camry with a City College bumper sticker. There's a lady with a Cherokee. There's an all-black Charger with silver rims, and there's a brown Honda minivan. Any car pulls up that's not one of those nines, I say, look out! It's danger. They say I'm smart because I'm a lookout on the block. I order my breakfast every morning at the corner store. I order it through three-inch bulletproof glass windows that has mug shots of black faces on it. The windows are so thick, I got to yell my order. I say, hey, man, I want the Doritos. Now, I don't want the spicy nacho. I want the Cool Ranch, the blue bag, the blue bag, the blue bag. And the guy goes to get it, drops my Doritos in the bulletproof glass drawer, and he slides it out to me like I'm an inmate in solitary confinement. I'm in the real world, though. Shot spotters sit on top of poles, listening to gunshots, blue lights are flashing, boarded up businesses for blocks. Man, if society was a person, I wouldn't think society trusted me. So I steal anyway. I'm looking forward to going to school today, I guess, because I'm a part of an after-school program. It's ran by this guy named Jamal Cole. Jamal's always telling us that he can't afford to take us to China, so he takes us to Chinatown. He can't afford to take us to Poland, so he takes us to Jefferson Park. He can't afford to take us to India, so he takes us to Divine Avenue. Jamal's always saying, like, we can travel the world without leaving Chicago. And just last week, Jamal took us downtown and went to a museum. But the coolest part wasn't the museum. Nah. Hey, the coolest part was, I never seen anybody wait for a taxi before. And Jamal let us all get out, waiting for a taxi. We got to ride a few blocks. I thought that was pretty dope. Hey, I was telling Jamal, I don't like to go see my dad. He just got out of jail, he on house arrest. Every time I see him, he's sending me on errands. But I noticed when my mom posted a picture of her new boyfriend on Facebook, my dad liked that picture. But when my mom posted a picture on Facebook of me having a 3.5 GPA, my dad never liked that picture. That bothered me. And look, my name is Jamal Cole. I thought it was important to start off and tell that story because the more we're separated as a city, the less empathy we have for each other. Right? Hey man, when, when most people hear about something negative happening in another Chicago community, especially where people are a lot different from them, might as well happen in another country. But when you visit different communities and you interact with the residents, it could change all that. I grew up in a household where all three of my older cousins and brothers, one doing 80 years in Stateville, 40 years, 20 years, same house, man. And I, I write my brothers. 
I write my cousins. I always write them by hand so they know I still love them. You know what I mean? And I asked him, how is it in Statesville? My older cousin told me, he said, Jamal, you know what? On my block, you know, because in jails it's blocks, A block, B block, C block. He said, on my block, I'm not in here with no, I'm not in jail with any pedophiles. You know, there's no rapists where I'm at. I'm in here with guys that have sold a little drugs, racketeering, armed robbery, you know, regular stuff. I mean, he really said regular, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> man, it got me thinking that, got me thinking. It's not regular for German shepherds to be sniffing kids on 79th Street. It's not regular for helicopters to be landing on top of people's houses at night. It's not regular to have to order your breakfast through bulletproof glass windows every day. If y'all just ate y'all quiche through a bulletproof glass window right now, you'll be traumatized. It's not regular to walk inside of a Walgreens and all the costs are be locked up. It's not regular for all the billboards in my community to promote cheap divorces and $6,000 tax advances, right? It's not regular, man. It's, it's not regular for there to be 15 currency exchanges and no banks. How am I supposed to save? It's not regular for there to be a liquor store in every other corner. I might as well get drunk. It's not regular for there to be a holding cell in the basement of a funeral home. It's not regular for there to be two paddy wagons parked outside the front of my high school. That's not regular. It's not regular for 80% of the kids in my program to know somebody that's been murdered. But only 10% of the kids in my program know somebody that's been to college. That stuff is not regular. And they say, like it's regular, they say that I work with at-risk youth. Man, the integrity of this city is at risk if we're not supporting programs like My Block, My Hood, My City. So I want to you know, thank Mayor Emanuel for the Champion of Freedom Award. I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank my board. Uh, but ain't no freedom on 79th and Cottage, man. It's just the happiest liquors. Ain't no freedom on Roosevelt and Pulaski. It's just the Metro PCS with the bulletproof glass. Freedom without equity ain't freedom. That's just a struggle. Oppression is super real, y'all. It's a structural part of this country and its history. It was created intentionally. And nowadays it's cloaked up and trumped up laws and false media, and we have a hard time recognizing how injustice is being sustained. It's not regular to see the cheap divorce signs, man. It's not regular. So I want to thank you guys for coming out, and I want to charge you with supporting organizations like My Block, My Hood, My City. You can do that easily. You can text message EXPLORE to 55222, and you can sponsor one of our kids to go through our program for a year. Again, that's EXPLORE at 55222, because it's cool to say, oh, great speech, great speech. I need support. This ain't, this ain't, it's hard to take all these kids around the city. So I charge you guys, if you really want to make a difference, text message EXPLORE to 55222, and see how you can get involved. Dr. Martin Luther King said, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. He says, all men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality bound by a single garment of destiny. He says, what affects one person directly affects all of us indirectly. He said, I can't be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can't be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That's the interrelated structure of reality. So in this interconnected Chicago that I envision, all 77 community areas need to contribute to the music of the city, right? So the residents of Humble Park, they're gonna play the timpani. The residents of the Gold Coast, they're gonna play the cymbals. The residents of Woodlawn are gonna play the xylophones. And you know Chatham, they're gonna play the bass drums. We got the most bucket boys in the city, right? It just makes sense. Hey, the point is, all 77 community areas contribute to the music of the city. And if one community is struggling and can't play their part, the entire piece is gonna suffer. And we're all gonna be concerned. Thank you guys. What a speech and what a speaker. I really think we're gonna be hearing a lot more about Jamal Cole, not yet 40, written several books, started a charitable organization, running for Congress, 
Wish you well, Jamal. His campaign site is coal2022.com. I want to thank patrons and donors. Patrons are those who join up at patreon.com forward slash speakola. If you know that, you know it's a place to support artists and creatives and filmmakers and painters and authors. It's a great initiative. It means that you can have fans who keep you going. And there's 47 Speakola fans who are doing just that. Uh, thank you to the former Premier of Victoria, Ted Bailey. He came on board over the last few weeks. But if you don't want to do Patreon, if you don't want to sign up to another thing, you can just do a straight-out donation using your credit card. And that can be one-off or monthly, but do that through speakola.com forward slash donate. Go on, give me a little pat on the back for organising Jamal. He was awesome. Thank you to David Bridie for our theme song. Thank you to our sponsor, The Podcast Reader. Send David at The Podcast Reader an email hello at podread.org and say, David, good on you for supporting Speakola. I'd love to try your magazine. Send me a free PDF. That's it for episode 31. Thanks for subscribing. Get in touch if you like. My Twitter's at by Tony Wilson. And see you next time.